Well, I'm delighted to say that uh, joining me on the Godcast today is Don McRae. Now, Don is a very well-known sports writer who originates from uh, South Africa, but has been living in the UK for a number of years. Don has written numerous books and won numerous awards and has interviewed some of the most famous sporting personalities across the globe. So it's a real pleasure to welcome you, Don, to the Godcast. How are you today? I'm good, Alex, and thank you for having me on. Yeah, and, and uh, as we record this, we're just a few few short days away from Christmas. It, uh, would you say it's been a good sporting year? Um, I think it's been an unusual one, a bit like last year. Obviously, COVID has overshadowed things hugely. And um, this year, we kind of got out of it a little bit, but we, it looks like we're going back into uh, you know lockdowns and so forth. Obviously, the big two events this year, I guess, were the Olympics. Um, I didn't go to Tokyo, but um, from what I've heard, people who were there sort of had quite ambivalent feelings. The competition was intense and, you know, there were some fantastic stories, as always in the Olympics. But I think the absence of, of spectators and fans was felt acutely. And a number of people I know who were there felt people in Japan were not too sure that the Olympics should go on because they were facing a much bigger crisis. Um, and then obviously the other event was the, the football in, in England and England did well and, you know, pain of the penalties and uh, the final. Um, but that was, you know, uh, quite a, a summer, I think. And England, you know, did well. And, you know, I think it was quite uplifting that such a, a mixed team of ethnicities. Um, of course, the aftermath was spoiled when three young black players missed penalties and then we had the social media onslaught which was a snapshot of uh, what young sportsmen and women have faced today but yeah there were there were a lot of good and uplifting moments along the way too yes and and um just um a few hours after the bbc sports personality of the year was announced mm-hmm. uh emma radicanu uh won that trophy um was that as surprising as a win in the US Open or, or not, in your view? Was it a surprise for winning the US Open or sports personality? Well, well, both really, which was more of a surprise. <laughs> well, certainly the US Open was a, was a seismic shock. Um, last night, I think um, we all kind of expected she would win because, um, you know, you can't, uh, if you'd sort of that a novelistic version of her life over the last year, it would have got chucked out. No one would have believed it. You know, a year ago, none of us had heard of her. She still had her A-levels to come. And yet, um, you know, in September this year, as a qualifier, she wins the US Open. It's just <laughs> the stuff of fantasy. And, um, you know, I, I think that's definitely the sporting story which has stood out this year. Yeah. And we'll come back to sport in a little while, Don. But if we just talk about your, yourself a little bit, obviously you you spent your childhood and your young adult life in South Africa. I was wondering how, how that shaped you as a young person and 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 what was kind of influencing you as a young guy. I noticed you 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 wrote wrote for um in, for about music before sport. So what what was it? What was the young life like for Don McRae? Well, it's quite complicated, um, but certainly. I would say my childhood and early years were um, quite idyllic. Um, being a white South African in the 1960s and 70s, you were 
I think, and arguably amongst the most pampered people in the world. Um, the sun shone, we were spoilt, um, we were blissfully unaware of the consequences of apartheid. And in a way, I think my sort of absorption in sport and the significance of sport comes out of those years because instinctively I love sport, my, my whole family likes sport. But, you know, when I was a little boy, um, sort of in the early 70s, or a young boy, sort of 10, 11, 12, 13, um, there was an international sports boycott because of apartheid. And I was about 9, 10, when I was starting to ask my father, why can't we play international sport? Why can't we go to the Olympics? Why can't we play in any World Cups? Why, whenever we do go on tour, is the tour cancelled or there's protesters? And my dad explained it was because of apartheid. And my mother and father, they changed their political perspective over the years. They kind of educated themselves. In the early years, when I was a child, they were, I think, also oblivious largely to the consequences of apartheid. Um, we had what we called servants in our house, which would be two black women. And we had a, a gardener. And these were middle-aged um, men and women, but they were known as the girl and the boy, um, because that was the way the terminology of apartheid. And yet we were so close um, to these black uh, women and, and men in, in our house. So I think slowly I started to think this is just a bit illogical. Um, they would, uh, when we made them, you know, lunch, cup of tea, cup of coffee, they had their own tin mugs and tin plates because it would have soiled us if their mouths touched our spoons and forks, which, you know, many years later, you know, my, my father, who did some amazing things in South Africa, actually helped change things enormously in South Africa. He just hung his head in shame because he said, what were we thinking? Um, but so with these little conversations or innocent conversations between my father and I, I started to think, well, there's something amiss in South Africa. And of course, at that age, initially I had sort of a lot of anger to, towards the outside world, but I thought, oh, they just don't understand us. We are good people. But by the time I got to 15, 16, 17, um, the shadow of the army was hanging over me because as white South African boys, you had to go into the army for two years, fight on the border, you know, with uh, Namibia and then Angola and Mozambique. And um, after those two years camps, you then had to go into the army each year for three months, a year for the next nine years. And this was something I just did not want to do. And closer and closer it came to me, 16, 17, I also began to develop this political awareness that actually going to the army, you would be defending apartheid and racism. And um, so sport had been the um, catalyst for me having these slightly deeper thoughts. And obviously it took a while for me to develop this political consciousness. And if I excuse the long-winded answer here, but then finally, just to explain why I had to leave South Africa is in the 1980s, um, one way of staying out of the army was by going to university. So I did uh, a BA and then I did English honors and then English masters. And I was sort of started an English PhD to just escape the army. But I also wanted to get a bit of independence. So I started to teach English in Soweto and their sport and music 
helped me enormously because I was the only white person going to this part of Soweto. And suddenly my naivety hit me that I thought, how are the young black people I'm a teacher, was in my early 20s, they were 18, 19. How are they going to respond to me? Surely they would want to kind of lynch me because of all that I personified. And yet I got the most amazing welcome in Soweto from the students and my fellow teachers. And music and sport were two of the things that we just had such a common um, identity. And even though there was only 10 miles between suburban life where I lived and township Soweto, they were two polar opposites. Um, and eventually I knew I had to leave because I just wasn't going to the army. Your choices were you either went to jail for six years, you did the army, or you left the country. And I took, I guess, the, perhaps the more cowardly ways I left the country. But that was hard because I left my family and I left my country. Um, anyway, sorry about the length of the answer, but South Africa is a complicated place and hopefully that gives you a little snapshot. Yeah. And, and, and was it, um, were you? Was your family religious in any way, Don? Did you have a religious upbringing? Yes, I did, funnily enough. Uh, my mother and father um, were ardent churchgoers, and I was, I say the word made, and I think in my teenage years, I was coerced into going to church each Sunday. And I think that, you know, I had many conversations with my mother and father who, who have died in the last year or two, um, and we spoke about the fact that I think I became quite anti the church because when I was that teenage boy full of angst and concern and fear about the way the country was going and where I was going, um, I didn't see the church doing anything. It wasn't speaking out against injustice. And if anything, whenever we went to um, church on a Sunday, um, I felt it would be exalting the South African government and praying for them to stay solid and wise and keep to the course of, and for me, I was kind of steeped in, you know, as a young boy in sort of biblical verse. And um, I just knew that this was the antithesis of what the church should be saying. So we had a lot of arguments, my mother and father and I, about the church. But Alex, it was kind of moving. Um, you know, I lost my sister in 2018, and my mother in 2019, and my father to COVID in 2020. So in the space of 21 months, I lost, you know, my core blood family, all, all, all one after another. And certainly for the services for my mother and my father, um, they were held in the church where they had gone to for many years. And it was deeply moving for me um, to talk to the minister there. And, um, you know, he had sort of views which chimed with my own in the sense that he didn't want to judge anyone on their colour or their ethnicity or their sexuality. And, um, you know, my mother's service was, was a, a beautiful service. My father's last year, um, in August 2020, we couldn't go because of COVID. But we joined by a video link. And the sun shone in, in England that day. It was a beautiful day. And it was just one of them. I wouldn't say, obviously, I felt deeply sad. I lost my father, who had been a wonderful man. But it was, it was actually so uplifting because the service was, was beautiful. And um, we were able, my family and I were able to share that. So um, I felt in a way I came full circle and I learned not to be so judgmental 
um, of people who had been in the church, you know, back in you know the 1970s and 80s. Yeah, well, well, thank, thanks for your honest account there, Don. And, and I think um, I think we're all guilty of that. And 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 you know, and and I I find those struggles. People, you know, hold hold the church accountable for the misgivings of the past. And um, I, I I fully accept that. It's just we have to try and move on. And I'm, I'm glad that you've had a, a positive experience, particularly in loss, which is which is really important. Sure. And and so your your writing ability, Don. When did you realize that you had a knack or you had a skill for this this beautiful, what I consider an art form, really? Well, I, I was I'm one of those lucky people, Alex. That I've always kind of known what I wanted to do, and I I, I don't know how young I was, but I would think. 10, 11, 12, I kind of knew I was going to write. I, I don't know why I didn't articulate it. Oh, I'm going to become a, an author or anything like that. I just knew I loved words. By the time I was sort of 14, 15, it was unequivocal. And, um, you know, I, I love music. And so I sort of started my fanzine um, back in the 1980s. And that kind of gave me the taste for it. Um, and then when I came to England, long, long time away, given away how old I am, but it was 1984. I was in my early 20s and I managed to get a, a job um, at the NME, which at the time was, you know, such a powerful music paper. And um, that was exciting for, for me. Um, so I've always known that that was what I wanted to do. And I think my South African past influenced me even then. And an agent saw some articles I'd written for the, for the enemy and asked me if I wanted to write a book. And um, I had an idea about writing a book about South Africa at the time. And I, I got a publishing deal, but the editor was a kind woman who quickly worked out I was too young and immature to actually put down these conflicting thoughts in my head and my heart on paper. And she allowed me to keep it. It was a small advance, but she didn't ask me to pay, pay it back. But she just said, go away, live, and find something, you know, this, this book will come. And eventually, I did write that book in uh, 2012, I think it was, which is kind of a memoir of my time in South Africa, but a memoir of my, my family in particular, my mother and father. Um, and yeah, there's quite a lot on how their faith helped them. And... Um, you know, so again, that was a, a good thing to do. And then I think I got offered a, another book deal, which um, was a prostitution in London on the sex business. So um, my mother and father had quite a few uh, qualms. What was this going to be about? But I never forget my dad once, he did say to me, uh, you know, Jesus had, you know, this capacity to welcome people from all spheres of life and those who were dispossessed, those who suffered, those who were considered the lowest in society, he would welcome them. So he he sort of, um, which is not the way I was looking at it, but it made me think, yes, um, that is a good way to, to look at the subject. And I spent about four years working on this book. And I think it was then I began to understand that actually I'm interested in people and even though I'm talking a lot here, Alex, I haven't stopped talking, have I? But normally, I'm the other side of the mic is that I'm listening. <laughs> and I felt able to listen to the stories that these prostitutes were telling me. And 
I became less judgmental of, of, of them and also of um, the men who were seeing them. And although it's not a particularly good book, it was one where it taught me just to actually listen more. And then I went on and continued other books that I've you know, written 14 books in, in total. Um, so I'm still keen to uh, keep going. I, I do love it and I feel honoured and lucky to be able to do what I do. Yeah. I'm just keen to go back to the NME years, Don, because I'm a huge fan of music. Were, were you interviewing artists at that point or were you reviewing concerts? What was your kind of... Uh, when, when I started, um, it, was, it was quite hard to get in because this was... Enemy was just coming towards the end of its golden age. I always feel when I came on, the decline began. Um, but so early on, I would go to gigs and I would get about 250 words. And these were days before computers. So I would type them up on a battered old typewriter. There was no email. And then I would catch the tube and take my little page, half a page of words about a gig I'd been to hand it over to the to the editor. Um, so it was kind of antiquated. Um, I then started doing a few interviews. Um, but yeah, I, I, I worked between 84 and 87 for, for the enemy. Um, uh, you know, some amazing people, you know, I worked alongside. Um, but I think at that stage, I was just totally keen to become an author to write books. And it was only subsequently that um, I wrote a book about boxing, which won the sports book of the year. And then I, I, gave, I had a bit of luck and a few other awards with, with another book. And so that's when The Guardian asked me to do their sports interview. Um, so I haven't done much about music, which I missed, but I, I found it hard to write about music because um, I think at that stage, I wasn't actually interviewing people. It was just more about you know the, the gig I went to or the singles of the week, um, and I wasn't I wasn't a particularly good music journalist, I don't think. <laughs> and, and and obviously you you made this uh, transfer in, in, into the world of sport, and you touched on there about boxing, Don. Um, I just wanted, you know, you have interviewed some wonderful people, but uh, you know I, I love the sport of boxing, and there's two, I have two favourite boxers, and I just wonder what your thoughts were about these two two very contrasting people the first one was barry mcguigan who um was was a guy who i i just i was just he was a bit of a hero when i was a kid i loved watching his fights sure. and more on more latterly um is tyson fury who, who i find i find quite an extraordinary um individual who you know uh doesn't look particularly like the heavyweight champion of the world but he's he's he is a colossal kind of guy um, and I think is has got is is inspiring people with his with his story. What's your thoughts on those two guys? Well, uh, both of them, you know, are figure large in, in in sort of my work over over the years. Barry McGuigan, um, you know, I was when I first came to England, I was kind of blown away in the mid eighties by what he was doing because, as you said, you know. You know, a lot of young kids like you would have looked up to him. And I was a young man in my, my 20s. And for him to become world champion and the way he kind of galvanized, you know, Northern Ireland and, and, and the South and united um, people was, was inspired so, so many of us. 
and I got to know him in, in later years. And, um, you know, he and I became close friends and we spoke a lot about Northern Ireland and South Africa and how they echoed each other. South Africa was divided along racial lines and Northern Ireland, obviously, um, sectarian divide, which had religion sort of at its heart. But as we know, the actual meaning of, you know, God's word had been mangled and distorted by those who used the gun and, and violence to, you know, push ahead their, their views. And so, you know, he kept saying, you should write about Northern Ireland. And um, I love boxing and then Belfast is a quintessential boxing town um, or city, I should say. And eventually I started working on this idea that um, how boxing, which most of us, I think, justifiably see as a violent and a dirty business, but also boxing has a capacity to engender such good, such hope, um, and specifically in Northern Ireland. And the more I learned, the more I was just amazed by how boxing was this one unifying force between two sides, the Catholics on the one side and the Protestants on the other side. And Barry McGuigan is one of five people in that book. And um, the heart of the book is, is a man who started the Holy Family Gym um, in New Lodge, which is a Republican part of Belfast, still going well, going well these days. He's a wonderful man who's just in his early 80s now. And he had this capacity just to unite people. So he had boxers coming from the Shankill Road, which was the sort of loyalist or Protestant side coming into the, the Republican Catholic heartlands. And there was no animosity between these two boxers. And for me, I knew there was a book there when I learned how Jerry's story, this, this wonderful man at the Holy Family Gym, he was asked into the Mays jail in 1981. And 1981 in Belfast was uh, the darkest time. Bobby Sands and nine other Republican prisoners basically starved themselves to death. And, and there were bombs going off, absolute violence, no hope. And both sides of the Mays jail asked if he would come in and teach them boxing just to lift these men who were in jail for life. And uh, he, he, and I totally believe him. He said he would only have gone in if both sides wanted him. He was not willing to work with just one side. And I just thought this was a phenomenal thing that he would go in twice a week on Tuesdays to the Republican wing of the, the jail and on Thursdays to the loyalist wing of the jail. And eventually the two sides shared boxing equipment. They spoke to each other about what he was doing. And when the peace process came, some of the politicians who had been in the maze spoke to me about how he had helped them. Um, so, he, you know, um, and Barry McGuigan is, is at the heart of that story. Um, then moving on to, to Tyson, um, just a fascinating figure. And I totally endorse all that, that you have said about him. I think he is a colossal figure, complicated man. And to give you an insight, I first, interviewed Tyson at his home with his wife. They had two young kids. I think they have six kids now. This would have been back in, I think, 2015. And he was having a lot of mental health issues then, which he wasn't well known. And I did this interview, never forget it for The Guardian, with a 
photographer. He kept looking at me, giving me the eye to say this is going a little bit, because Tyson started to talk about the darkness in his life and how he wanted to kill himself. And he said at the moment, looking about this place, this was his little home in Morecambe. He said, I just want to smash up this place. And I was looking at his wife and she was also giving me a little glance, sort of telling me it's okay, but yeah, you've got to be a bit careful. Not that I ever felt he was going to do any violence to me, but I felt a man who was in deep, deep turmoil. Um, but we continued and he spoke beautifully as well. And I then interviewed him many times after that. Um, sometimes he would be talking about how he, he felt ashamed that he left school at the age of eight and he couldn't write well at all. He was battling. He said, this is what I want to do. I want to learn to use letters and words on a paper, and which was moving. But then other times he would talk about his views about homosexuality, which was steeped in a biblical kind of hellfire version. Um, and I found that side of him difficult. Um, but we always spoke well, and I listened to him, and he would listen to me. And then he became world champion, and then fell by the wayside and was out of boxing for a number of years. And then he made this unbelievable comeback in, in 2018. And um, he fought Deontay Wilder for the first time. He was, the word is polex, which is a cliche, but he was actually knocked unconscious. As just as this fight was ending, this world title fight, which he'd been winning, no one ever thought he could get up. It was almost like a divine biblical intervention. The count was four, five, six, and suddenly Deontay Wilder is jumping up in jubilation, and suddenly out of the corner of his eye, he sees Tyson getting up. And, you know, it was, it was just an unbelievable moment. My sister had just died not long before that. And in a way, I, I watched that fight in the dead of night because I, I didn't go to Los Angeles. And it kind of was so uplifting because it did make me think that out of the absolute depths, what he, where he had been with his mental health, he'd come to this point. He then physically is knocked unconscious and within six or seven seconds, he's getting up. <laughs> you know, you, you couldn't make it up. And, and since then, I think he has influenced so many people. He had a book out, which I... I know he did in a short time, but um, it touched, sold, whatever, quarter of a million copies. And I think people looked at him not just as a boxer, but as someone who had pulled themselves out of darkness into a new kind of life. And he's still deeply human, still makes many mistakes, but I've interviewed him since. And, you know, this was last time, was last year in 2020, before the second fight. And, as soon as I walked into the gym, he hollered out my name and he said, you, the first man to see the darkness in me, which I thought, oh my God, is he not too happy with me? But no, he was, he was fine and you know, we, had a, we had a nice interview. So yeah, he's a, he's a fascinating person. Yeah. So yeah, I think you've made two good choices there. Thank you. <laughs> um, Don, um, uh, it was actually a radio journalist that gave me some advice um, when I was setting out on the Godcast uh, experience. And he's, he said, you know, don't, don't just go for those people who are famous. Um, go for the people that are, are unheard of as well. And you'll in there you will find some gems. And I, and I found that to be true. Um, would you concur with that? Can you, can you recall any 
people that who were kind of maybe under the radar who you, who you you interviewed and and uh, left a real mark on you absolutely um i think at the guardian my my job is to ideally talk to the famous um, because people do want to hear people at the top of of their, their business um and i managed to get some you know good names which is important but exactly what you have said i've learned more and more is that sometimes the less famous people the people who seem obscure on the surface are actually the best interviews gosh alex there's so many i mean the guardian attempted to work out a while ago i think they got they thought i've done about a thousand interviews for them alone never mind all the interviews i've done for for the guardian i for for my own work so there are thousands of people i've spoken to as you can see with my white hair. But in answer to your question, I would pick up one um, woman called Claire Danson. Her sister, Alex Danson, was part of um, the GB hockey team, which won a gold medal at London, oh no, excuse me, in 2016 at the Olympics. So Alex was kind of, not a huge name, but she was known within sporting spheres. And I've never met her, but I heard um, this was last year, summer of last year, about her sister, who was a triathlete, totally unknown in the widest sphere of things. I didn't know anything about her sporting exploits. But she was out training one day, um, out sort of in, in, you know, near the farmlands. I forget exactly where, and she got hit by a tractor one morning and lost all movements in her body from the neck down. Um, and I saw a tweet that um, Alex, her sister, had posted about her maybe a month after this had happened. So I contacted Alex to say, could I maybe talk to her and, and Claire? Because I just had this instinct that it was devastating what had happened to Claire. And she was a young woman, you know, in her 20s. But the way Alex spoke about her in this tweet made me understand that she was attempting to do something quite special. And Alex was wonderful. And she, um, and actually I had, I had, excuse me, I'm sort of getting, but, but I had actually interviewed Alex before, um, soon after she, so we, we had a bit of a link, Alex and I, and she knew the kind of interviews I would I, I do. So I think it was in December, 2020, this time last year, um, I went to the rehabilitation center where Claire was totally paralyzed from the neck down. This was about maybe four months after the accident had happened. And I had one of the most amazing mornings of, of my life with these two sisters who are not well known. Mm. Um, and Claire, you know, spoke so honestly about what the accident had done to her and even basic bodily functions, going to the toilet she couldn't do anymore. Um, she had a boyfriend at the time. She spoke to me about, you know, how things had changed between them. Such honesty and such moving um, ability to face up to the pain of what happened to her and find a kind of chink of light. And she never mentioned any sort of religious belief, but there was something else there, I felt, that was helping her. And um, so for me, 
that was an example of someone who no one had, well, not many people had heard of. And yet it was one of the interviews that have stayed with me ever since I, I have met her. Yeah, thanks, Don. Um, another, another question I'd like to ask you is, um, if you're ever disappointed by your guests, uh, and if you have a have a strategy to kind of bring them around, uh, yes. Um, on the whole, um, I kind of I like people. So if you spend an hour with someone, um, normally you're going to find some good things about them. And if you listen and you give them a chance to be themselves, normally they can respond in a quite a positive way. But the more famous they become, the more jaded they are and the more interviews they've done. And they're kind of doing it because they've got something to plug or the agent has said, you better speak to this guy because it will help us. You've got a book coming out, you know, they could plug for the book or you've got a movie or whatever. Those interviews are hard because those people come not wanting to actually engage with you and have a conversation. They want to come and just churn out some answers and hopefully be out of there by within 15 minutes. So uh, I don't always succeed, but I think sometimes if it's not going well, I will just actually say, you know, I don't think you're enjoying this and I apologize because obviously my questions are so anodyne. And, you know, can we talk about something else that you would like to talk about? And they're oh, no, no, it's fine, it's fine. And then I, I will say, well, actually, I think I'm not getting a feel for you as a person. And I know what you have done to get to the point where you are. It's taken enormous amounts. And I'd love to be able to convey that. Doesn't always work, but usually then people sort of warm up a little bit. Um, so on, on the whole, most people are fine. And I think, uh, Alex, I've been doing this Guardian interview for over 18 years. So I think most people I interview, they have an idea what I do and that are their long form pieces. And on the whole, they're, they're normally quite positive about people. So lately, people have been quite open and, and good with me. But yeah, there are times when it doesn't work. And, and I want to ask you about um, writing for others, Don. You, you've obviously written lots of books um, yourself, but you, you have uh, written autobiographies for numerous um, stars in sport is that a different dynamic for you or, or, or uh, do you kind of throw yourself into it with the same kind of approach and mentality just just say a few words about that if you would uh, um, well in a nutshell out of the 14 books I've written um, four have been um, ghostly books first was Victoria Pendleton the cyclist um, and one of my Guardian interviews had been seen by the BBC and by a filmmaker who wanted to make a film for the BBC about a guy called Dan Gordon, particularly talented filmmaker. And he asked me to ask her if she would do it. And I was involved in that film and then she asked me to do her book. And it turned out, I, I initially wasn't sure whether I should, but then she had self-harmed. She had a lot of difficulties with confidence. It was a complex life, and I felt I could help her tell that story. Um, so I, I, I sort of, it was similar to my other books. Then there was a different one, Stephen Gerrard in 2015, obviously synonymous with Liverpool, given his whole footballing life to Liverpool. And this was in March 2015, and he had decided he was going to step down 
leave Liverpool in May 2015. And the publishing deal was we wanted they wanted the book out that September. So I was given 15 weeks to write his book. Um, and he's coming to the end of his playing time. So it was enormously difficult because I knew I would take four years to write a book. I said he had 15 weeks. And Stephen was full of emotion because he was coming to the end. But he was amazing with me and gave me a, a lot of time. And, and although that book, I wish it could have been edited, done a lot, but we got it done. Um, and then just quickly, I'm conscious I'm taking a lot of time here explaining these things, but Joe Cox, the, the Labour MP who was murdered in 2016, um, her husband asked me to write his book which was kind of a memoir of, of Joe and what she meant. And again, I didn't have a lot of time to do that, but um, that was a moving book because I did it um, in the space of about four months, interviewing a husband on the boat where he and Joe had lived with their two kids on the Thames. Um, and then totally different, um, I worked with Eddie Jones, who's England's rugby coach. Um, so oh, yeah, tell, tell us about Tell us about Eddie Jones, Don. I mean, he is, he's, um, he's an interesting gentleman, isn't he? And obviously he's, he's very well traveled. Was, was he a good person to work with? He, he was a fascinating, funny enough, I've done two books with Eddie. One has just come out um, last month, um, but in 2019, his autobiography came out and we worked on that between 2016 and 2019. I liked it because because his life is unusual. He, Japanese um, mother who had been born in the States, she was interned just after Pearl Harbor. So it was basically in a form of a concentration camp in the US in the Second World War and suffered a lot. And his father was an Australian, sort of working class man. So he had quite an unusual upbringing, I think, in Sydney, similar age to me, he's just a little bit older than me. Um, quite a tough man, abrasive man, as he admits, but highly intelligent. And um, he's worked all over the world. And um, yeah, we, 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 we got on well and it, it, it worked out fine to the extent that he asked me last year to work on this other book, which was sort of more a book about coaching and, and leadership. Um, I, I was kind of have a new idea which I'm working on at the moment. So, but because of COVID, I couldn't travel, and, and that book entails me going to the States a lot. Um, so we decided we would we would do this, which is a totally different kind of book in the sense that it didn't have the normal voice that I like a book to have. But it was a, a, a good exercise for me, and he seemed happy with it. So that was the main thing. Thanks, Don, and and <clears throat> a Burnley lad. Lancashire lad. I don't know if your paths have crossed with our great leader at Turf Moor, Mr. Dyche. Um, but if, if not, maybe you could say a word about him as a manager. He's well, very unique. funny enough, there's a link with Eddie because um, Eddie spoke so much about Sean, who I've never met. I would love to interview Sean Dyche, Dyche because I think he's done a, a wonderful job at Burnley. Um, and Eddie loves meeting coaches from all over the world. So he would spend time with Pep Guardiola, um, a lot of the, the, the great coaches in, in football. Um, he said the person who almost impressed him the most was Sean Dyche. I said, oh, because I love, you know, he loved his time with, 
with Guardiola and Arsene Wenger and Southgate and Louis van Gaal and you know all these you know huge names but he said his time at Burnley was so illuminating he said the way Sean Dyche actually inspires people he said you know you go to these clubs and they have slogans on the wall most of them are just anodyne and, and pointless but Sean's messages have such an impact on his players the way he organizes them, the way he leads them, the way he overcomes the limitations that he has to work with. And he said he just learned so much. I think his, his adjective for Sean Dyche is magnificent. So maybe he wants to meet him even more so. So uh, if you can put a word in with me, with Sean. <laughs> well, I don't actually know Sean. I don't know Sean. I know, I know quite a few of the guys, but I don't know Sean. But he's, um, he would be a good guest for you. I think. Yeah, well, well, if, you, if you've got any connections as well, Tom. <laughs> oh, we'll see if we can help each other. <laughs> and, and just kind of, it's been wonderful talking to you. I could talk to you all day, Don, about... about uh, sport it's just I love it so much but um, you know do, do you think Burnley might um, do another great escape this year or do you think they're in a bit of a pickle I, I've sort of learned over the years that Burnley just when you think they're kind of not gonna and I know they did go down once under Sean but um, I feel he always finds a way and I I, I think they'll be okay they'll be okay it's going to be tight there might be Sort of fourth or fifth bottom, but I, I kind of think they'll, they'll 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 escape. But yeah, this season it's 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 a tough tough battle for them. Yeah, and, and once uh, Christmas is um, done and dusted, have, have you got some exciting interviews to look forward to in the new year? What what's plans for you? Um, well, certainly in terms of the interviews, um, the, the couple I'm, I'm working on, it always sort of sometimes the best ones take a long time to actually nail down. Um, then I, I'm working on a, a book which is come out, going to come out in 2024, um, and that is sort of about, I, I wrote a book called Dark Trade, which was about firefighters like Mike Tyson, um, Chris Eubank, Nassim Hamed, um, back in the 1990s, and this is a little something similar, because a lot of my books lately have been going back in time, like with the Wigan book, Sunshine of Shadow was sort of set in the, in the 80s. Um, I've done books about heart surgeons back in the 1960s, criminal law in the 1920s. But this is a book that is set now, and it's going to be about five or six bark boxes, Mexico, the US and the UK. But it's also going to have a personal touch. I think it's going to be a book about loss and also a little bit about death, <laughs> but bleak subjects, but a number of fighters died over the last few years. Um, and I think it'll be a way for me to talk a little bit about the way I've dealt with loss. Um, hopefully it won't be self-indulgent and it will merely be an aside. But certainly boxing is something I've always loved for all the bad things about boxing. And Feisters are people I admire hugely. Tyson, you know, he will feature a little bit in this book. Um, and um, so, yeah, that's what I'm going to be working on the next few years. Yeah. And, and just finally, Don, um, I interviewed uh, Jeffrey Archer, who who is clearly as passionate about his writing now as he was when he started out all those years ago. And, and you are a highly decorated uh, journalist, but I suppose I might be know the answer to this. But if you had to give all those awards back and stop writing um, or continue writing, which would you do? 
Oh, not even, not even to, I, I pause there because I, I just want to make sure what you, you were saying. So it was a choice to keep the awards and stop writing or give up the awards and continue writing. Yeah. Second one, without a shadow of doubt. The awards are lovely, um, but I, I've been nominated many times for many awards. I've, I've perhaps lost more than I've won. I've won quite a few, so I'm lucky, but I've lost a few too. At the time, it's, it's a, you know, of course, it's nice to win, but by the time the next day has come, whether I've won or lost, I kind of want to just get on. Um, and as long as I can hopefully continue doing this to a decent standard, um, I want to continue because maybe it's just an old man conning himself, but I, I like to think I'm getting better and I'm certainly working as hard as I ever worked. And my enthusiasm is as high as ever, and I'm meeting some amazing people. And today's an example. I mean, if I if I wasn't a writer, we wouldn't have had this conversation. I just apologize. I've kind of dominated it because I've been yucking away. But you know, I think people want to hear about you rather than me, Tom. But... <laughs> well, I have a lot to ask you. We'll have to do another way. I'll interview you, Alex, because uh, I know there'll be. A, I'd love to hear about your life and what you've done. But thank you so much. Thank you. And and um, just, uh, I did say that was the final question, but it, will you manage to see any sport over Christmas and the new year? Have you got plans to do that? Um, I think um, I'm a big Arsenal fan um, and my son is back from university. So um, Arsenal play Man City on New Year's Day. We sort of spoke about going because we can get access to tickets, but <laughs> I think it'll be a bit of a beating. But yeah, we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll go to an Arsenal game you know, in, the, in the next week or two. Wonderful. Don, thank you so much for coming on the Godcast. It's been a real real pleasure and a privilege to listen to you talk. I've enjoyed every minute of it. And uh, we send our, our best year from Burnley, Lancashire, and wish you a lovely Christmas and all the best for 2022. Thank you. Same to you, Alex. Thanks so much for having me on. And you know, all the best to you for the next year. Keep doing your wonderful work. <laughs>